Sad news to open today's show as we learned late Wednesday night that superstar Billy Graham has died at age 79, a three-time world champion and award-winning bodybuilder who was famously close with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Graham was best known as the WWWF heavyweight champion for a nine-month period from 1977 to 78. He was largely credited with being the catalyst for professional wrestling's boom in the 1980s with Hulk Hogan, Jesse the Body Ventura, and Ric Flair primarily all borrowing and building upon different parts of his talents. But even more modern wrestlers like Stone Cold Steve Austin, Triple H, and Scott Steiner based significant elements of their looks and characters on Graham. Graham really was the consummate wrestler in his time. Beyond the in-ring ability, his charisma led him to revolutionizing what was then called the interview, now better known as a promo. He was a devout Christian who grew up in the South. He was a all-around athlete whose bodybuilding connections led him to train with Stu Hart in the infamous dungeon in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. He's one of the most famous graduates of the dungeon who is actually not related to the Hearts. Really, it's Graham and Junkyard Dog who stood out during that era. Graham worked with all the big names of his time, Pat Patterson and the high chief Peter Maivia in the NWA, Wahoo McDaniel, Ivan Koloff, and Ivan Putsky in the AWA, and both Bruno Sammartino and Antonio Inoki in his first WWWF run. As champion, he fought Dusty Rhodes, Pedro Morales, Don Morocco, Mil Mascaris, and Bob Backlund. He did wrestle for a short while after Vince McMahon bought the WWF from his father, but after around 1983, he was largely sporadic throughout different companies over the next few years. Graham was eventually inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2004 by Triple H on WrestleMania 10 weekend, and he was still being paid by WWE through his death on a Legends contract, despite numerous public battles with the company and the McMahons in his final years. Superstar Billy Graham was indeed a legend who will be remembered as part of the industry forever. Simply put, professional wrestling would not have been the same without him. Hey now, we are getting over and I am the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, here to lead you through these hard times. That is, with episode 442 of your favorite professional wrestling podcast. That's right, Getting Over is back once again and it is Thursday, so you know exactly what that means. We will be spending this episode of Getting Over breaking down everything that happened across AEW and NXT this week. AEW building towards Double or Nothing, NXT building towards Battleground, both on the same weekend, Memorial Day weekend, at the end of the month. We have an absolute loaded show to get to today, so let me begin, as always, with a reminder that the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast is all about So be sure to head on over to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Drop those five-star ratings on Apple. If you also leave a five-star written review, we will read those words right here on the show. That is how important those reviews are for us. Also, do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis highlights, and so much more again on Twitter at Getting Overcast. And there's one more thing that you can remember. I happen to love the number... Five. So join us for $5 a month over at buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio, instant reaction shows after each of the major wrestling TV shows each week, along with news posts, primarily for WWE. But we are starting to dip our toe into the AEW news universe as well. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. The price is right, $5 a month. You support the show and you get bonus content. What more could you want? Now, We do have an absolutely loaded show today, as we usually do, but more so today than most, given the major news that has not just been announced about AEW, but reported about AEW as well. So we are going to kick this show off with a big look at All Elite Wrestling, the new television show, what happened on Dynamite and Rampage, building toward Double or Nothing. 
and then we will tackle NXT at the end of the program. As always, we will have timestamps in our episode descriptions, so all you need to do, check the description, look at the timestamp, and if you happen not to like AEW, you can jump over to NXT, but as always, I hope you listen to the entire show. Now, before we dive into the build for AEW Double or Nothing, because we are kicking off with AEW today, we obviously need to start with Wednesday's major announcement and the massive news that followed it. At the Warner Brothers Discovery Upfronts, AEW Collision was officially announced as a live two-hour show every Saturday night at 8 p.m. Eastern on TNT. Now, last week on this show, I spent a good amount of time praising AEW for getting another major bag from Turner, and that take remains the same. This is a huge boom for a growing company, and the incoming funds from a second weekly two-hour live show will help AEW maintain their large roster, perhaps bid up against WWE for talents, both on their own roster and even WWE's roster, and put forth big plays like future events, video games, and things of that ilk. There are questions that come from the move, primarily about booking and roster utilization. Tony Khan will be taking on a second two-hour live wrestling show. That's giving AEW five hours of TV weekly, four of them live, plus the Ring of Honor streaming shows that he is also booking. It does seem like Dark and Elevation are going away, but those were light lifts anyway. Let's remember, Tony Khan is a guy who has significant roles in NFL and EPL franchises, not to mention other business interests and, you would hope, some type of personal life as well. AEW is clearly his baby where he has decided to focus most of his time on it. But while this may not be doubling his work exactly, it is nonetheless increasing it by a significant margin. And this is going to be a wait-and-see situation. Already announced for the roster are many of the ex-WWE talents who have not been on TV consistently, Miro, Andrade El Idolo, and to some respect, FTR. They're obviously champions, but they go really long stretches not on TV, sometimes because of injury reasons and others not because of injury reasons. Also announced was Thunder Rosa, who was largely exiled by the other top women in that division. She also is coming off injury. And lastly, of course, not announced, CM Punk. Now, we will get to him later as that is an entire other part of this conversation. But what remains to be seen is whether there's going to be a hard or soft roster split and whether that's going to happen through a draft. Also, what about all the titles? Will some work across both brands? Will some be exclusive? Are all champions going to be able to go to both shows? Let's not forget, I think AEW has seven titles right now. Even with an otherwise hard roster split, that is a lot of people rotating between brands if they're not going to be exclusive. Now, also missing from Wednesday was this rumored larger announcement that, as we mentioned on last week's show, always seemed to kind of be thin in terms of the legitimacy of it. The rumor was AEW would be announcing a five-year deal worth more than $1 billion with Turner for Dynamite, Collision, Rampage, I assume all access and streaming rights on Max, including pay-per-views to some degree. Now that didn't happen, and there does not appear to be any inkling of that happening. I imagine AEW is gonna be paid quite well for Collision, But a live show Saturday night is going against significant competition. So I really don't know what the expectations are from a ratings and demographic standpoint for TNT. Aside from other live sports like MLB and NBA, you have primetime college football in the fall and primetime NFL, including playoff games in the winter. And that's not to mention WWE premium live events, which Collision is now going to go head-to-head with either by happenstance or on purpose. I mean, are they planning to get viewers for Collision head-to-head against SummerSlam? And then you have AEW pay-per-views, which air on Saturdays in the fall because Tony does not like to run against the NFL on Sundays. Now, maybe they bump Collision up, they make it 6-8 to as the pre-show, Sunday Night Heat style, and then go into the pay-per-view. That's an easy fix. But nevertheless, Saturday, my point is it's a massive night of competition. So the time slot is immensely interesting, but it 
also was seemingly the only option. AEW does not want to go head-to-head with WWE, which takes out Monday, Tuesday, and Friday. Wednesday is Dynamite. Thursday and Sunday are primarily NFL in the fall. So that leaves Saturday. We're going to have to see what this does from a ratings perspective because to this point, the Rampages and Battles of the Belts, they have not done well on weekends, even when they've been in better time slots. I know that I personally will almost never watch Collision Live unless I have to, if it's before a pay-per-view or something like that. I just assume the purpose of the show is to go for almost entirely DVR viewership because I don't know what exactly they are going to get on Saturday nights. Now on Dynamite, Tony Khan made the same collision announcement, calling Wednesdays one of the greatest days in the history of AEW. The only new information that we got were upcoming taping dates, nearly two months of them actually. All were listed except for one, the premiere on Saturday, June 17th. And I could only roll my eyes as he announced that an announcement would come next week. This after last week, He made an announcement, promoting an announcement for this week. You can't make this shit up. We are like in this announcement loop vortex right now with AEW. Now, I'm having a little bit of fun, but we need to be completely fair to Tony because I presume the announcement Thursday was supposed to be the debut location at the United Center in Chicago. However, matters got complicated by someone And I wonder who might have thrown a wrench into all these plans at the 11th hour. Before we move on to that person, I also want to give Tony credit. He blinked multiple times during this announcement. I also believe it was pre-taped and not live, which is another big positive and something that we've been talking about for a long time. But let's get to the elephant in the room that I have delayed enough, CM Punk. And honestly, I'm not even sure where to start other than by saying this. I believe I had that. CM Punk was supposed to be part of the Warner announcement for Collision. He was supposed to be on all of the press materials. And Tony on Wednesday night was supposed to announce the second coming, which was the planned slogan for the debut episode of Collision, not just in Chicago, but again at the United Center on June 17th. This would, of course, coincide with CM Punk's return to AEW following a nine-month leave over a mix of injury, possibly suspension, coming out of Brawl Out. Except CM Punk was nowhere to be found on Wednesday. His name was discovered on first draft versions of the release that got leaked. And as the day progressed, it was ultimately reported that everything I just told you had transpired. This, while Punk got into another social media battle with fans and a wrestling media personality whose name we will not mention on this show. The lingering question, though, is why? Why did this huge plan that was put in place for months go to shit suddenly right before the announcement? Well, folks, do I have a story to tell you? And this is based entirely on third-party reporting, but it is reporting I largely trust, especially from PW Insider. Apparently, as part of the negotiations to bring Punk back, Ace Steel was given a job with AEW. Ace Steel, you will remember, is the guy who bit with his mouth like a dog, an executive in the company during a backstage brawl instigated by CM Punk, mouthing off at a press conference, insulting those executive vice presidents and burying his own boss, Tony Khan, just moments after winning the company's top title in the main event of their biggest show of the year. This guy, A. Steele, a non-essential to the product on TV or behind the scenes, was apparently given fresh employment with AEW only because CM Punk demanded to have him by his side. Now, this suddenly became an issue Tuesday, not because A. Steele was hired at all, but rather because CM Punk took that hiring to mean that A. Steele would be backstage with him at all shows, primarily Collision. However, Punk was apparently informed this would not be the case, at least not on an every week basis. And because of that, it appears as if there has been yet another schism in the AEW CM Punk relationship. I'd call this unbelievable, except 
it is not only 100% believable, but it was 100% predictable. How so? Because history is the greatest indicator of future events. How many times does CM Punk have to put Tony Khan's hand on the stove before he realizes that putting his hand on the stove is going to get him burned? Perhaps Punk has been right this entire time in that AEW is run by children because only children, and I'm not referring to the elite here, only children will continue to make the same mistakes when presented with evidence that tells them they should do otherwise. Only children would be so excited to play with their favorite toy again that they forget it has two broken pieces, it doesn't work the way it used to, and it gives off an odor that affects the entire playroom. We are nine months removed from Brawl Out, and there have been no apologies, no amends, and seemingly no adult decisions made. And it all starts and ends with Tony Khan. If Tony had nipped the Colt Cabana situation in the bud a year ago, it's unlikely any of this would have happened at all, at least not in the extreme manner that it ultimately did. This shows a continued inability to face conflict and handle it appropriately. If the Cabana situation had been addressed, if the Hangman Page promo had been addressed, if the ongoing bad blood between the elite and punk had been addressed, at any of those points, the situation could have been mitigated. Instead, it completely blew up at Brawl Out and clearly remains a pressing issue. As I stated that night and in multiple shows over the last nine months, what Punk did to Khan was embarrassing and disrespectful. It should have been in that moment that Tony severed ties with him, even if he could not have formally done it until Punk recovered from injury, if there was something in the contract that necessitated that. Whether he was scared that Punk would jump to WWE and make a splash, unable to throw his favorite toy in the trash, or he simply believes that Punk is the only name who can actually boost AEW ratings. Tony made a terrible decision bringing this guy back, particularly in a situation where, again, he has seemingly not made any apologies or amends as part of this process. Let me also be clear. There is no scenario that exists where a guy who bites a coworker and throws a chair should be rehired by a company. That is the definition of enabling. And there should have been no scenario where if making the terrible decision to hire this guy back, the terms of that hire were not crystal freaking clear to any and all parties who needed to be informed. If CM Punk was promised one thing and got the rug pulled out from under him, I don't blame him one bit for being angry and protesting this situation. But the fact that this guy was hired back at all should have been a win for Punk. In reality, this hire and this situation should have never come up because it never should have been allowed. Let me be clear again. Punk's initial gripes with AEW, they were not without credence. Even now, he seems to have some legitimate reason to be bothered if all of this reporting is accurate. The problem initially was AEW is so poorly run with a person on top so afraid of conflict that those gripes were never addressed. The issue is not just actions that were taken, but how many opportunities there were to create solutions only to instead be met time and time again with inaction. That's poor management. That's poor leadership. And given an opportunity to put it all in the past and move forward, Tony Khan instead decided to go back to the well and try again, despite history in both AEW and WWE, by the way, offering other advice. This still might all work out. Cooler heads might prevail. Tony Khan next week might announce the second coming and the United Center and the return of CM Punk. The first episode of Collision might hit 1.2 million viewers, just like Rampage. Fans might serenade him and welcome him back with open arms. Hell, Tony might even put the title on him for a third time in hopes that the angst and the injuries are all behind him. If you believe in the multiverse bullshit that Marvel is shoving down our throats, I'm sure one of those universes exist where Punk and AEW lock arms and live happily ever after. But what is it that has happened over the last couple of years, let alone Punk's entire career, that tells you a positive outcome is the most likely one? These are the same people making the same mistakes. No contrition, no apology, no amends, 
No lessons learned. It does indeed feel like the second coming after all. Let me tell you folks, after that, I could use a drink, but let's go ahead and move on to Dynamite and Rampage as we break down the build to AEW Double or Nothing on Dynamite. The young bucks in the parking lot were explaining how Kenny Omega was banged up when Blackpool Combat Club appeared, stalking them from behind. The bucks said they weren't there to fight, but threw their suitcases at BCC, only to get destroyed into a car two-on-three. John Moxley then said they were the only elite in the business. You would have thought the Bucks would be like smart enough to go to the arena with security or backup, knowing they're in the process of being systematically picked apart by this other faction, but they didn't. So in the main event of the show, Don Callis entered. There were about five minutes left. He entered to explain his turn on Kenny Omega. He came out to no music, fans chanting piece of shit, and Tony Schiavone acting like Callis had almost like pushed his mother down some stairs or something. He got good heat saying he was the real victim because he led Omega to all of his successes. So Kenny entered after a minute and started beating up security members after taking out three of them. BCC ran in from behind and completely laid him out with a paradigm shift by Mox on the ramp. Then Mox grabbed the mic saying the war was over and this was their final warning. The Bucks came out with weapons and Matt Jackson had his arm in a sling. Then Hangman Page entered, making his return with a leather eye patch. He stood by their side and took a barbed wire broom from Omega. They started beating the shit out of BCC. Taz did a really funny hacksaw Jim Duggan call because someone used a two by four. Omega pounced Wheeler Yuta into the ropes with a trash can lid. And the elite hit a BTE trigger plus buckshot lariat from Hangman to end Dynamite standing tall. Hangman then grabbed the mic saying they're the heart and soul of AEW and together they are the elite. Then he announced anarchy in the arena was already set for double or nothing. Now, what I liked most about this is that we actually did not get resolution to the Omega Kala situation. That leaves it hanging over the match to some degree, and it might even factor into the booking if Callis, let's say, truly has his claws in Konosuke Takeshka. But also great was Hangman's return, standing alongside his brothers, and the really high energy attack with a strong finish to the show. It's the right match and the right booking. We finally have Hangman back with the Elite, and the storyline reached another level of intensity. Really strong stuff all around. If I had to give one note, it would just be the whole we are the heart and soul of AEW being so similar to like the AEW original angle they're doing with the women, and then the outcast kind of being on the other side. I, I kind of wish they went away from that because I don't think this is really about who's the heart and soul of AEW. It's just who's the more dominant faction in AEW. And BCC are saying, we're real professional wrestlers. And the elite are saying, no, we're the elite in the industry. I would have focused a little bit more on that, but they look, promos aren't scripted. And maybe that was the point, but Hangman just kind of went off script a little bit. And by off script in that instance, clearly, I mean off plan. Uh, something else that's also become noticeable to me is Brian Danielson is not really getting physically involved in anything. He almost seems to fully be in a managerial role right now, which is obviously curious given his history. I'm not trying to jump to any conclusions, especially given there's now a four-on-four -four match set for the pay-per-view. So one has to believe that Danielson wrestling is part of that booking. At a minimum, though, they are clearly trying to lessen the shots he's taken, and that's whether due to injury or otherwise. On Dynamite, Sammy Guevara fought Exodus Prime. Sammy beat this jobber in 30 seconds with the GTH. He then grabbed the mic to talk about being a local product who's busted his ass for opportunities. He said he's listening to his heart, which is telling him that he'll be the next world champion. I'd have preferred a real match for Sammy instead of a jobber squash, but the promo was solid. We had Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy against Big Bill and Lee Moriarty on Dynamite. This was booked with no rhyme or reason whatsoever. We got some inventive offense from Moriarty. Orange countered Bill into Stun Dog Millionaire with Darby pouncing on him for a code red in a really cool combination. Orange then hit Beach Break on Moriarty with Darby adding the coffin drop as Orange hit the Superman punch on Bill with Darby getting the one, two, three after doing a side headlock takedown in a callback to the MJF match. Darby later cut a brief promo when Sammy approached him saying one of the challengers has to take the belt off that prick, meaning MJF. Darby dapped him up and agreed. I thought this was a really nice piece of business with the match. They should have opened Dynamite instead of the Wardlow segment that we'll talk about later. The goal was clearly to get the Four Pillars challengers in the ring having matches ahead of Double or Nothing. But I'd have liked a reason for this particular match to transpire. All you need is one backstage segment to make a TV match. It's one of my ongoing problems with AEW booking. It's not that WWE doesn't do random matches. They do also. 
but you get a social media segment or something earlier in the show that they said happened in the arena and they give you a reason for the match happening. Here, they just don't. And it's often really frustrating for me. I also really enjoyed the Darby and Sammy moment backstage. Even though this is a multi-man match, plans are well and good until you get to that deciding fall. And that is the story that they've been telling both in this segment and the one that followed. So we had Jungle Boy against Roosh. Jack bladed minutes into the match with Roosh literally spreading his forehead apart to try to get more blood out. Jose tried distracting, but Jack caught Roosh in snare trap. After a rope break, Roosh licked Jack's blood and hit a toss belly-to-belly suplex off the apron outside in a really nasty spot where it kind of looked like Jungle Boy landed on the side of his head, but he was okay. Roosh got aggressive at one point, leading the referee to pull him off Jack, so Roosh shoved the referee. Jack won, not only with a roll-up, but by grabbing Roosh's tights, cheating for the victory. Preston Vance then attacked with a rope, so Darby and Sammy made consecutive saves with the three challengers all staring at each other and nodding their heads in respect, I guess, to end this segment. Let's start with the positives, which were the action in the match and the post-match angle. Jungle Boy showed out against a quality opponent, and the challengers all showing appreciation and respect for each other continued what we were just talking about. My problem is AEW had a chance to give all three of these guys notable wins going into double or nothing. And instead, we got Sammy squashing a jobber, Darby winning a random tag team match, and ultra babyface Jack cheating with a roll-up to beat Roosh. All three bookings left a ton to be desired when you're talking about world championship challengers. After this match backstage, MJF was trying to get interviewed by Renee Paquette, so he slapped the microphone out of her hand. We got nothing else, which was odd. If you're having MJF travel all the way to the show, is that really the only thing you're doing with him? That's disappointing. On Rampage, Action Andretti fought Kyle Fletcher. Remember when Andretti beat Chris Jericho and was in like a top storyline alongside Ricky Starks? Me too. Here he served as typical Rampage fodder for Fletcher, who had already been granted an international title match. Fletcher kicked out of a springboard 450 and won with a spinning tombstone pile driver. It was well wrestled, but it was lackluster. On Dynamite, Orange was asked about Fletcher wanting a title shot, and he granted it to him for double or nothing. My thought was, this is simply not a pay-per-view match or feud. The entire development was like a five-second attack from behind last week, and then an acceptance this week. So then, 30 minutes later on Dynamite, Orange did a second interview where he was informed that 20 people asked Tony Khan for a shot at the title. So Cassidy, as a dumb babyface, decided, you know what? Let's do a 21-person Blackjack Battle Royal for the title. Now, don't get it twisted. The Battle Royal is undoubtedly a better piece of booking than Orange and Fletcher one-on-one. But it does create this kind of unbelievable booking of Orange coming out of a battle royal with the odds stacked against him or dropping the title in a battle royal without getting pinned or submitted. Notice he didn't sell his long kayfabe hand injury during this match, which makes me believe that perhaps there was some type of plan that changed here. I would hate it for Orange to have such a great title reign. And let's be clear. He has one of the best title reigns right now that AEW has ever had for any of its championships. I would hate to see that ended without him actually putting someone over one-on-one. So again, the Battle Royal creates a situation where he drops the title without putting someone over, or he retains it in a scenario that is pretty unbelievable, beating 21 people in a Battle Royal, because the odds, again, are massively stacked against him. On Dynamite, Roderick Strong fought Chris Jericho in a false count anywhere match, Adam Cole and JAS were barred from the building. Strong caught Jericho blind before the bell and beat his ass early with running forearms. He eventually got caught in walls of Jericho, but broke it. They fought through the crowd into the concourse with Jericho suplexing Strong through a table. Excalibur then literally announced superstar Billy Graham's death mid-match in like a five-second rushed mention rather than wait for a spot between segments, which was really not a good decision. Jericho beat Strong with a stanchion and then flicked off fans for multiple different Y2J chants. They wound up on some random stairwell platform, which was actually a really cool visual. Strong shoved ice cream in Jericho's face. There were probably 200 fans in the concourse at this point, which again made for another really great visual. They wound up outside, which seemed to be the point of such a long time on the concourse, and it paid off with Adam Cole attacking Jericho from behind. He caught him with the boom on a dirt patch. 
with Strong adding the jumping knee for the one, two, three in front of about five people because everyone else was made to remain in the building. This was a super fun false count anywhere match. The booking was extremely smart. Given Cole, you know, had the stipulation where no one could go inside the arena. It doesn't mean they couldn't be outside the arena waiting for them. I'm sure that next week, Cole and Jericho on the pay-per-view will become official. The work was tremendous between Chris and Roddy and the match itself. We got some decently inventive stuff going around the concourse. And again, the finish was perfect. I don't really have a grade, but it was my favorite thing that we got on Dynamite. On Dynamite also, Wardlow opened the show, as I mentioned earlier. I think it's maybe the first time he's ever done that. He dared Christian Cage to come out and spit in his face. So Christian and Luchasaurus entered. They talked trash off Mike for a moment before Christian went to spit, but Wardlow grabbed his throat. And then he got attacked two on one with a low blow from Christian. Luchasaurus grabbed a ladder, which Christian put into Wardlow's like waiting hands, which were probably 18 inches in front of his face. But then the whole thing was saved with, with Luchasaurus choke slamming Wardlow into the ladder, which was propped in the corner. And then Christian hit an unprettier into the ladder flat on the canvas. And Wardlow actually forgot to cover his face. And he took a really bad bump into that ladder. Now, it was a surprisingly low energy start to Dynamite. Certainly a strange decision to open the show with this segment. Like I said, it should have been the Darby Allen and Orange Cassidy match. Wardlow is obviously highly confident given his size, but he did look like an idiot not realizing this would be a two-on-one beatdown situation. At least commentary called that out. I did appreciate it. It's an interesting booking that I assume will transpire a double or nothing, but given we have a real feud here between the two, for some reason, this Wardlow TNT title reign is... It's reminiscent of the first one in that it just lacks notoriety. Arn Anderson later was angry at Wardlow for putting himself in that position, asking, hey, what are you prepared to do in order to beat Christian? So Wardlow got really angry and he challenged Christian to a ladder match, which was obviously telegraphed by them randomly using a ladder out of nowhere in this segment. And again, we get to my point about rushed booking in AEW, where all of this should have been developed earlier in the month with Wardlow coming back from injury and then making the ladder match challenge. He stews about it for a couple weeks, then he makes the challenge. Instead, they did it all inside of 10 minutes on television, and it just felt rushed to me. A cigar man at Chef Aaron 26, he wrote in, I don't know about you, but I think Wardlow could be Triple H's next Batista. Well, first of all, uh, Wardlow's not in WWE, but if you're suggesting that WWE sign him, I'll say this, Wardlow, to me, has nowhere near the level of charisma of Batista. He is definitely more athletic in the ring and he has a lot of other things going for him as well. But WWE is a character-driven company and big guy who yells and gets angry and doesn't really have much story beyond that isn't a character that WWE wants. So maybe Wardlow develops and one day becomes the type of person who Triple H might want for a Batista-like role in WWE even though I think Wardlow would be better suited in WWE given his size, his ability, and some of the things that he can do, right now, I do not see the Batista comparisons and I definitely don't see the Goldberg comparisons, which is obviously what what AEW is trying to do with Wardlow, or at least for a long time was trying to do with Wardlow. On Dynamite, the Jeff Jarrett stable came out for an interview when they instead started cutting a promo on stage. FTR snuck out from behind and shoved Satnam Singh blind off the stage through a couple tables. FTR then beat the shit out of the heels. Dax Harwood somehow ripped an entire leg of Jay Lethal's pants. Cash Wheeler beat Jarrett with a chair. FTR was ready to take out Jeff when suddenly, I shit you not, Karen Jarrett climbed into the ring for a low blow before Jarrett hit the stroke. Then Singh sauntered down and hit a double choke slam. Jarrett and Lethal then slammed respective Dax and Cash labeled guitars over the champion's heads. Folks, I don't know what to say here. Karen Jarrett in 2023. First, the sing bump to start this, it was a cool idea. But the way it was executed, it looked like he was getting pushed into a pool by his friends. And then we didn't even get five seconds to marinate on the big bump because cameras just immediately cut to a regular old outside of the ring brawl. Now, I'm curious to see what they have in store for the go home next week, because the entire juice for this match right now is Briscoe, and Mark Briscoe was not even involved in the show. And then you bring in Karen Jarrett. It's just straight up dumbfounding. No one asked for this. She doesn't add anything. It was just, to me, completely strange. I hate this. 
I hate this crap. Stop. Stop with the crap. On Rampage, Tony Storm fought Allison Kay. This was another lone women's match featuring an enhancement talent. Tony won with Storm Zero in less than five minutes, spray painting Kay after it was over. I don't even think they're trying to spray the L anymore. This was so terrible. I'm bored, brother. Now, the opposite is actually true on Dynamite because we had Britt Baker and Akaru Shida against Storm and Ruby Soho. This was the anticipated and promoted six-woman match. It got changed into a tag team contest due to a legitimate injury for Jamie Hayter, who, of course, is the champion for whom we've been waiting to find a challenger at Double or Nothing. Baker ate a hip attack, throwing her off the apron outside. Shida hit a triple crossbody outside and a falcon arrow on Soho. Baker then hit a blockbuster on Storm, who for some reason had Soho under her arm for an own goal type of DDT. Soho hit Baker with no future, but she countered Storm Zero into an air raid crash and added a stomp. Soraya distracted on the apron. That gave Storm an opening to spray Baker in the face and hit Storm Zero for the win. This is one of the best things we've gotten since the Outcast formed, as far as this storyline goes. It was easily the best segment of the first hour on Dynamite. Damn good match at 3.5 stars and a B. Smart finish with the heels appropriately going over. And we didn't even get a post-match attack for a change, though that's probably because Hater wasn't available. Now, backstage later, Storm was promoted as having four AEW wins inside of five days. She called out Hater, saying if she had any guts at all, she'd put the title on the line at double or nothing. So clearly they were planning to build this match on the show, but were unable to do it because Hater was absent. And that's completely fair. Really though, again, this should have been built weeks ago, which points to how AEW always seems to rush its pay-per-view booking until the final two weeks before the show. Anyway, I presume this would not have happened if Hater was not expected to be cleared in time, so we are getting the match. And out of the three outcasts, Hater against Storm is by far the best possible outcome that we could have gotten. On Dynamite, Ricky Starks fought Jay White. Starks had a great tornado DDT springing off the ropes. White went on a run with a great twisting Uranagi and a crazy exploder suplex toss over the ropes outside. Starks rallied with a unique slam move for a false finish. Starks then missed Rochambeau and got tripped by Juice Robinson as he was running the ropes. But he avoided Sling Blade and bounced off the ropes for a spear. When he got White up for Rochambeau, White straight gouged his eyes out. Juice then jumped in with a chair, but Starks avoided it. He swung on Juice with the chair and hit Jay with it once. The referee tried to stop him. He wasn't going to do a DQ. But Starks swung a second time with a chair shot to the back for an official disqualification. Now, DQs are so rare in AEW that I'm actually not going to criticize them for doing it in this spot where really neither guy should have taken a clean fall. However, because AEW does DQ so infrequently, it really stood out as a disappointing finish when you as a viewer are conditioned to be expecting something decisive. With Juice there for a two-on-one, I thought it was an easy situation where White could have gotten a win via cheating. The problem is they would have had to run it back with Starks presumably getting the dub, and I'm not sure they actually want to do that. I guess we'll have to see if they book this for double or nothing or anything like it. Now, this was an awesome match. I was on the way to four-star territory, but the finish dropped it to 3.75 B+. Still, the best in-ring action we got on the entire show, and one of three matches, Jericho Strong and the women's tag I just mentioned, those were the others, that made hour two a million times better than hour one on Wednesday night. I actually think the women's tag was the end of hour one, but nevertheless, those three matches, the first like 45 minutes of Dynamite, they sucked. I gotta say, it just, it wasn't good. The start to the show was rough, but those three matches picked up the entire thing. And of course, the main event was great as well. On Rampage, the acclaimed and Billy Gunn fought Butcher Blade and Kip Sabian. Max Caster had a line about Vince McMahon's mustache that felt really forced. Gunn hit Sabian with a Famouser and acclaimed easily added a rival and mic drop for the win. The match was fine. I don't have any other notes. On Rampage, Mogul Embassy fought Dark Order. Best I could tell, this was another match without a reason for its booking. Brian Cage and Swerve Strickland combined for a double cutter and a false finish. Prince Nana distracted, giving an opening to the heels as they simultaneously hit the JML driver and Drill Claw for a double pinfall. Then Gates of Agony attacked Evil Uno with Keith Lee and Dustin Rhodes lumbering down for the save. Keith brought one of those stanchions uh, that hold the ropes, which popped me for the randomness. By the way, they're actually really heavy as hell when they're weighted. So it was pretty cool that he carried it like it was nothing. The match did not hold my attention at all. It would be nice with such a short time period left to actually build the Keith Lee and Swerve match, which at this point just feels like it's never going to happen. 
On Rampage, Gun Club complained backstage how they didn't get a rematch after losing the tag team titles. They promised to get back to the top soon. Ethan Page interrupted, saying he needs friends to help him, so they all walked off together. I was briefly interested in this. Until later on Rampage, the Hardys and Isaiah Cassidy were interviewed in the ring, excited to have deleted the firm with their focus now on winning the tag team titles. The Guns interrupted, trying to make a six-man challenge. Matt Hardy said they'd fight the Guns, but he was done with Page and would only agree if they got control of Page's contract, should they win. The Guns also promised to prevent the Hardys from getting anywhere near the titles their entire run in AEW. Not that there was anything particularly wrong with this, but going back to the contract stuff was such an eye roll. The promos were mediocre. The booking was not at all exciting in any meaningful way. And lastly, on Rampage, QT Marshall was back with QTV talking about All In at Wembley Stadium. Miss Hancock or whoever, whatever she's called, interviewed Powerhouse Hobbs for literally 10 seconds while he read his own book. It's unfathomable that this is still on TV, and it's ridiculous that Hobbs is still with this group. That is one big pile of shit. So that brings us to a really quick AEW Double or Nothing card breakdown. We have the four pillars match for the world championship, MJF, Darby Allen, Jungle Boy, and Sammy Guevara. The women's championship, Jamie Hayter against Tony Storm, which as of right now, based on official matches, even though this doesn't have that much direct build, Hayter and Storm directly, I'm anticipating this more than anything else. The tag team championship, FTR, against Jeff Jarrett and Jay Lethal with Mark Briscoe as a special guest referee. I'm anticipating this the least. Uh, the TNT title, Wardlow against Christian Cage in a ladder match. The international title, Orange Cassidy, defending it in a 21-person Blackjack Battle Royal. And then the Elite and Blackpool Combat Club, Anarchy in the Arena. That is the sixth official match and probably the one I'm anticipating most overall, not so much from an in-ring standpoint, but from a storyline standpoint, out of those six. Those are all official. There's three more that seem on their way to being made. Adam Cole against Chris Jericho, perhaps with a stipulation. Keith Lee against Swerve Strickland, perhaps with a stipulation. And then probably a TBS title match. Jade Cargill maybe defending against Taya Valkyrie again in a rematch. Not really excited for that, obviously, if it transpires. But we're looking at a minimum of a nine-match double-or-nothing card. There'll probably be at least one buy-in match on top of that. It's a lackluster card overall. Like, it shouldn't be, because a lot of what's here includes notable talent. But it doesn't really feel that exciting compared to the way builds for other AEW shows have been recently. Nevertheless, that's where we stand with AEW. And next week here on the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast, we will have your AEW Double or Nothing Ultimate Preview, And then, of course, next Sunday, we will have your AEW Double or Nothing Instant Reaction Podcast. Stay tuned for that. And if you are a first-time listener, make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Okay, with AEW out of the way, we are now moving finally to NXT. And I think if you listen to my breakdown of AEW, you'll hear I was very positive about this edition of Dynamite. For the most part, I have my criticisms, as I do with every show all the time. But all in all, it was an entertaining episode with a lot of good wrestling and good storyline development. That is not how I feel about NXT. I thought this was a massively disappointing show. Somehow, plenty happened, but everything felt uneventful and mediocre. The show-long storyline was a massive dud, and while the women's tournament largely delivered, the show just felt like it took 10 steps backward from last week's tremendous episode and a string of really strong ones that preceded it. Maybe it was just an awkward week given the go-home for Battleground is next week, but man, this show on Tuesday left a lot to be desired for me. Wesley and Tyler Bate were meditating to get on a higher plane when Wes suggested they cut it out and get ready for their match. Just as Bate agreed, Schism attacked, knocking them both out cold in the locker room with Joe Gacy saying their friendship was a charade that would burn out. Bate was later selling a left elbow injury in the training room with Wes declining an interview so he could make his statement in front of the NXT fans in the ring. Now, before we get to that, we had tag team action first. The Creed brothers against Dyad. The heels walked out with Ava, but not Gacy. The Creeds did a cool delayed exchange vertical suplex where a guy got passed vertically in the air from one to the other. Then they repeated it with a double exchange the other way. Dyad came back with an Inseguri flatliner combo into a Koji clutch that Julius Creed escaped with a powerbomb counter. Brutus then did an O'Connor roll combined into a Northern Light suplex for a double pin attempt. Both illegal wrestlers hit simultaneous 450s out of their respective corners in a choreographed spot before Jagger Reed countered a powerbomb into a DDT. Ava tried to attack Ivy Nile from behind 
only to get caught in a choke. Brutus bombed Rip Fowler outside with Julius hitting that unique amateur slam, plus the basement lariat for the win. Now, the match was a blast, but I'm 99% sure the two illegal guys factored into the finish. I don't remember seeing tags in either direction over the finishing sequence. Other than that, this was a banger with the Creeds looking incredible against the veteran team. Fantastic spot for them. D'Angelo family was having dinner when Stax took a phone call, leaving Tony D'Angelo on his own. A couple cops then came in and confronted him for an arrest over unspecified criminal acts before Stax came back confused at where he went. The Creeds saw this happen and jumped on commentary to issue a direct challenge to Gallus for Battleground in a short but really good promo by Julius. It simultaneously feels necessary to change the titles, but also unnecessary to put them back on the Creeds who already had a run last year. Still, it's fair to say Gallus is going nowhere in NXT, and if I had the book, I would switch the straps at Battleground to freshen up a division that has grown pretty damn stale. All right, back to Wesley. He entered late in the show, angry about the attack. He said the dyad are sheep for Gacy and Baton as example of a real friend. Tyler was shown watching from the training room as Gacy appeared in the crow's nest with Ava. He said that he's never been dishonest with what he wants, which is the North American Championship. Gacy formally asked for a title shot with Wes refusing to let him drive a wedge between himself and Tyler. That led Bate out. He was angry at Gacy and challenged Wesley for battleground. That led Bate out, who was angry at Gacy and challenged him for battleground. So Wes assumed that Gacy would have to fight twice but Bate clarified he wanted a title match too. This led Gacy to ask whether Wesley would take the challenge from the enemy, asking him clearly to his face, or the friend who stabbed him in the back trying to get a title shot. Wes, of course, took both challenges in a triple threat before being disgusted with Tyler, remarking, I thought I could trust you, bro. Strong booking, weak execution here. The storyline made all the sense in the world, but none of this was developed enough where Tyler challenging seemed like that big of a deal. They've only been friends for like two weeks, and a heel wanting a title match is certainly unsurprising. It also marks the third straight premium live event where we've had a multi-man match for this strap. That is just super repetitive, especially when this guy is having singles matches seemingly every week on TV for the title. This just didn't land with the impact it should have, but I do think it's gonna wind up being a banger match at the end of the day. That doesn't change the fact that the storyline was relative shit. Carmelo Hayes and Trick Williams drove up in a blue sports car and stormed right to the ring with Booker T remarking they passed the airport test as Trick talked shit to Drew Gulak and Charlie Dempsey, who were standing backstage. Melo grabbed a mic. He told Braun Breaker he got his message and neither of them are the same cats they were in April, so he challenged Braun to come to the ring. Gulak and Dempsey entered instead. They were angry about both being disrespected and also angry that their tag team match against Lee and Bate got canceled. So fans chanted Willy Wonka for Dempsey, which I gotta say was pretty damn good improv for them to do that. Credit to Trick and Mello because they pounced on the chant, especially Trick, who called him Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Anyway, they brawled with the faces coming out on top and the match getting made official later in the show. So we got Mello and Trick against Gulak and Dempsey. Hayes had a nice pump handle, a single arm spine buster on Dempsey. Williams then hit a discus boot on him with Mello landing nothing but net for the win. This was a situation where it would have been nice to see Trick get a win because he never does. Mello then called out Braun a second time. Instead of coming down, Breaker appeared on the Titantron from their barbershop with all the other guys looking nervous and unwilling to address him or help him. After the final match on the show, Mello and Trick hit the ring a third time, wanting Braun to show. He eventually entered with 10 security guards to protect the faces from him. Breaker said he's far more interested in destroying Hazen in his hometown than he is in winning the title. Mello shot back that beating Braun a second time will help jumpstart the dynasty that he wants. Breaker talked more trash, so Hayes just decided to hit a Tope Cone Hero into a handful of security that seemed to completely miss him, and it looked like he fell on the floor. The other half took on Trick as Mello and Braun brawled in the ring. Hayes decided to kick him with a low blow and then deliver a title shot, but Breaker fell before the title came anywhere near his extended hand, with both guys laid out selling pain in the ring to end the show. All of this was decent, yet completely unremarkable. It didn't advance the story, didn't have much reason for happening. It just felt like pure repetitive filler. The match possibly happened because one or two people were unable to get cleared for the show. If not, and it was planned this way, the booking was shit. Then you have the constant callouts of Breaker, 
which made Hayes look extremely weak and fragile as a champion. As a main storyline, it was disappointing. Nothing was accomplished. Nothing was advanced. The promos were soft. The match was unnecessary. I just did not understand the purpose of this at all. It would have been better to keep them apart for a week with vignettes and then a contract signing or something next week. Again, it just didn't make sense for this to happen. So let's move to the NXT Women's Tournament quarterfinals. The first one was Fallon Henley against Cora Jade. This opened the show. A bunch of women, including some who are injured, watched from backstage as Duke Hudson sat on a couch wearing glasses and grading papers, which was really funny. Henley hit a shining wizard but sold a knee injury, and Jade won with the double underhook DDT in five minutes. The match was fine and unspectacular. Lyra Valkyria came out to talk trash ahead of the semifinal after the bell. The second quarterfinal was Roxanne Perez against JC Jane. JC backstage said Roxy's time had come and gone, and she was disappointed that Gigi Dolan failed again because they wouldn't be able to fight in the semifinal. JC at one point wrenched Roxy's head back and literally licked the top of her head like a cat. I was shocked that like no one on commentary, especially Booker T, addressed that. Perez went on a run with a flying crossbody with Jane barely preventing a countered Pop Rocks in the corner. JC hit a huge discus forearm and drilled Roxy in the gut with a knee, but she missed a discus kick, which Perez used as an opening to hit Pop Rocks for the win in nine minutes. Tiffany Stratton came out for the semifinal showdown after the bell, right before Dolan attacked Jane out of the crowd, and they eventually got separated. Now, this was easily the best of the four quarterfinal matches. Roxy is obviously main roster ready from an in-ring standpoint, and JC sure as hell looked pretty close in ring as well. It was an impressive showing for her, and this really shone a light on what I was talking about last week. Jane looked good in defeat by putting on a battle, while Dolan looked like shit last week, losing in a rough match that went four or five minutes. Now, to wrap all of this up with a preview for next week, we do have the right semifinals out of each bracket. Stratton was my favorite going into the tournament, but the way this is playing out makes me completely rethink that assumption. Unless you believe they're going to go with Tiffany and Lyra in the final, or a heel versus heel match on a premium live event, which I do not think they're going to do, then one must believe that Cora is going to come out of her bracket, which means Perez is going to have to beat Stratton. And I don't see NXT moving the title to Indy Hartwell, having her retain over Roxy and Tiffany, then having her relinquish the title, only to put it back on Roxanne. And that leads me to believe that Cora Jade will be the next NXT women's champion, beating her rival and making them one-to-one in terms of their biggest showdowns to date. Thea Hale fought Kiana James. This started in the watch party where Kiana criticized Thea for rooting on Fallon in her quarterfinal, saying there's a big difference between a veteran and a rookie just happy to be there. They got heated with James disrespecting Hale, and it led to a match that Hudson approved from the couch. Duke was distracted, doing work all match at ringside. James was much more technical with Hale, hitting a bunch of crossbodies in a tope suicida. Kiana eventually caught her with the 401k to win in five minutes. Nice little match, good bounce back win for James after she lost in the tournament. Hale, obviously not hurt at all by the loss. So Isla Dragunov invaded Dijak's garage, torture chamber. I don't even know what you call it. Anyway, Isla confronted him and they went back and forth about the difference between pain and suffering. It was a strange and short face-to-face that didn't necessarily advance their feud. Dragunov was later shown tied up, sweating and panting. And it made a bit more sense that he gave himself up to Dijak for torture just to prove that he could not be broken. So Dijak then grabbed a nightstick. We never saw him use it, but we later saw Dragunov all bruised, taunting Dijak that he was still standing. He gave a look back, Dijak did, and then he walked away. I just didn't find this all that compelling. Tough guy or not, Dragunov giving himself over to let Dijak kick the shit out of him? That proves what exactly? Doesn't he just want to fight the guy that got DQ'd in a match against him and then slammed garage door on his ribs? What's the point of this? It, It wasn't what I'd call bad, but it just seemed completely unnecessary. Now, it did lead to a match booking that didn't get made until Wednesday, which is Dijak against Dragunov, last man standing at NXT Battleground. I think you all know, I hate last man standing matches generally. It does make sense for this feud based on what they're doing. But again, while I think the match is gonna be great, I just don't have that much excitement for it. And I don't like the build at all. Uh, Supernova Sessions with Noam Dar debuted in the United States. Dragon Lee was the first guest and he was forced to sit in a really shitty chair while Dar took the comfortable couch. They went back and forth, but it was excruciating. Dar started explaining the rules and how it's tough to defend the Heritage Cup. So Nathan Frazier interrupted to call him out for 
not being a fighting champion, Frazier supported Dragon Lee's challenge for Battleground, which Dar eventually accepted, before challenging Frazier to a non-cup match next week just so he could kick his ass. My lord, was this rough. I mean, it could not have ended soon enough for me. This match is undoubtedly going to rock because Noam Dar is a good wrestler and Dragon Lee is a great wrestler. I do expect Dragon Lee to ultimately take the cup in the match, but man, this was just a horrible segment. Between Dar rambling, Dragon being unable to shut him up, and then Fraser shoving himself in the middle of the entire thing, it was like 0 for 3. Very disappointing. It's got about as much chance of getting over as Orange Cassidy. Dar was backstage later running into Lash Legend, who returned to TV. She was with Jakara Jackson, who was making her debut. Lash ranted about all these talk shows popping up on NXT, ripping off Lashing Out. I'd have liked a bit more of an introduction of Jackson, but this was at least fun because Noam dropped, I'm sorry, Miss Jackson, but I'm for real, in a really unexpected shout out to Outcast. Uh, Tank Ledger was checking out his new tooth with Hank Walker saying they aren't going to get over based on their looks. Briggs and Jensen came up to give the guys credit for last week. They said that fighting each other made them closer than ever. That gave Tank the idea that he and Hank should have a hoss fight to serve as a bonding experience. Walker was a bit hesitant at first, but he ultimately agreed. This is a fun little bit of booking coming off of similarly fun stuff last week with these four guys. Decently excited to see what goes down coming out of this. Uh, Von Wagner was chatting with the woman who was alongside Luca Crucifino last week. She put him over for the Battle Royal on Raw and apologized for Luca talking shit. Vaughn then caught Crucifino arguing with Mr. Stone, so he shoved Luca up against a ladder and challenged him for next week, with Stone thrilled that Wagner got his back. But Stone tried a third time to get Wagner to address that photo. Vaughn again declined. And look, I credit them for trying hard to make this work. It's just not going to happen. Stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. There was a social media video of Danny Palmer being attacked by a woman covered head to toe in black at an NXT live event. There was no mention or more information about it, but I still maintain it's Blair Davenport without any concrete information to tell me that. And lastly, Dabakato got a promo package saying he returned to make a statement yet was angry about being passed over in the WWE draft. He said he was focused on kicking ass and winning championship gold with every superstar becoming his prey. And I'll tell you what, this freaking worked. And I've been decently impressed with Dabakato since he returned to NXT. He looked good in the ring when we saw him, and he's now cut two promos that were actually really solid for a big guy. Hey, maybe there's something here. Let's see. A bunch of wrestlers were watching this promo backstage with Malik Blade and Idris Anofe arguing and Axiom eager to step up to the challenge of fighting a bigger guy. This worked well. It made Axiom look gutsy. The disagreement between Anofe and Blade didn't really make much sense for me. So that was NXT this week, and as you can hear based on what I just explained, there were bright spots on the show. You know, I thought a couple matches and a couple segments stood out, but largely it was a disappointing episode of NXT compared to what they have been doing recently. Really, the two weeks prior to this, I thought were damn good. Last week, I thought was great. This just fell completely flat. The go-home for NXT Battleground is next week, which means we will have separate episodes. We will have an NXT show on Wednesday next week, the AEW show on Thursday. Both of them will be ultimate previews and we will have three instant analysis because not only are we getting WWE Night of Champions on Saturday, but we're getting both Double or Nothing and Battleground on Sunday. That means a six episode week for the Silver King, Adam Silverstein, and likely vintage Chris Vanini as well, at least let's hope four episodes for him. In other words, there's a lot still to come here from the Getting Over Wrestling podcast. So do not forget to follow us on Twitter at Getting Overcast for episode drops, news analysis, highlights, and so much more. Also, please remember that this show is all about Defy. And we don't just want but need your five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And I would truly love if you took a little time and left a five-star review on Apple. If you do, we will read it live right here on the show. There's one more thing you can remember on the way out. I happen to love the number five. And I hope you become official getting overheads by spending five bucks a month and joining us over at Buy Me A Coffee 
youtube.com slash getting over. You get bonus audio, the fastest five minutes in professional wrestling after Raw, NXT, Dynamite, and SmackDown every single week. And you also get news posts that hit your inbox or you can visit the website with the latest in WWE and hopefully soon AEW as well. Again, buymeacoffee.com slash getting over. I appreciate you all listening to this edition of the Getting Over Wrestling Podcast. As I explained, we have a massive week coming up next week. So if you're a first-time listener, be sure to subscribe. That's it for today, though. This is the Silver King signing off and leaving you with just three final words. Bye for now. Thank you.